All right, welcome back to the Product Marketing Experts podcast. It's Dan, and I'm super excited to kick off this first episode of my mini series where I'll be interviewing product marketing leaders about how they approach positioning. First, I wanna thank Marcus and the ShareBird team for giving me this opportunity. We've been working on this actually for about five months now, and I'm just really, really excited that we're finally going live with it. Before I introduce my first guest, I'd love a quick favor. I'm obviously new to this podcast and I don't really know the audience members very well, but I would. So if you could give me a quick shout out on Twitter, I'm at underscore Daniel J. Murphy, or find me on LinkedIn. Would love to connect and just say hello. So my first guest is Christy Roach. She is the self-serve product marketing lead at Airtable. And if you know Airtable, maybe you're a user, then you probably know Airtable can be pretty much anything to anyone, which means for Christy, it's a major positioning challenge. So I was really excited to sit down with her and talk through her approach. We also talked about the difference between positioning, messaging, and copy, and she outlined for us her framework and process. And speaking of process, she also did a really great job describing positioning sprints, something I've never done before, but a process her team was in the middle of doing when we recorded this podcast. So it was very front of mind for her and great to hear how Airtable uses positioning sprints to really sharpen their entire go-to-market efforts. It was a great conversation, really excited for you to listen. So without further ado, let's go. I'm really excited this week to have Christy Roach, the self-serve product marketing lead from Airtable, here to talk about positioning. Christy, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Yeah, of course. I'm excited to be here. All right. So let's start at the very top. Let's set some context because this is all about positioning and positioning is about setting context. So you were on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with Marcus. You talked about a whole bunch of stuff, product-led growth, which was really interesting. I found myself listening to it at the gym the other morning and I had to stop and take some notes because it was really good. And it also got me really excited to chat with you. Marcus had reached out to me after your conversation because he knew we were doing this mini series and he said, Hey, this is the person to chat with. So I'm really excited to get into this. And from what I hear, you're actually doing a positioning exercise right now. Yeah. I mean, one, I cannot imagine that my voice is helpful at the gym. So I apologize for what (laughs) might have been a subpar workout, but I'm actually knee deep in a positioning sprint. I have a meeting in three hours to go through some positioning research that our team has been doing and start drafting like a new framework. So this is a very timely conversation for me. Hopefully it's helpful to listen to because I am in the thick of it. I have yet to land the plane on Airtable's <laughs> positioning, but I'm doing it as we speak. Awesome. This is going to warm you up. You're going to be ready for positioning end of day. I swear we didn't plan this so that <laughs> it would be on the same day that you're presenting it. So let's actually start with what is your elevator pitch or your top level positioning for Airtable? Yeah, it's interesting. If you were to ask our CEO, he would give you a very interesting professorial answer around software creation and anyone should be able to build their own software. Here's how I say it. Airtable is a relational database. And what it does is it gives anyone, regardless of technical ability, the tools they need to orchestrate their work, build a process that actually works for their needs and workflows and can go as far and as powerful enough to create your own application. 
What that means is a lot of tools are focused on helping you with productivity. A lot of tools are focused on helping you get more done, et cetera. But really what people need is a platform that they can use and build on their own without an engineer's help, especially if they're not technical, to actually map out their process. And a lot of tools really force you to kind of change your process to fit the tool. And what we want to do is give you enough customization and flexibility that you can run whatever process it is, no matter how complex in this tool. So what we want to do is give everyone the power that comes with databases that are usually reserved for technical teams. And we've done that by putting it in a very familiar interface of a spreadsheet. A lot of people are trying to make spreadsheets work for everything. We want to make it easy to use like a spreadsheet, but give you the power that a database will give you so you actually can get to true business outcomes. I'm going to admit right up front that I actually have not used Airtable before. And it's funny because you were talking to Marcus about the early adopter is like a creator or an operator, someone mm-hmm. that like, I forgot, high watermark. There was some phrase you used. High ceiling. Uh, high ceiling, excuse me, high ceiling. Mm-hmm. And I feel like your description of it feels like a good fit for me. I love Zapier. I love spreadsheets. I am all over mm-hmm. that all the time. I do feel like I need to go check out Airtable. But what I wanted to ask you with that, with your positioning to start with, where did that come from? Was that framework that you use? Was it the CEO started that early on? Was that from a bunch of research you did? How did you kind of come up with that top level positioning for Airtable? I will say one of the things I appreciate is that our CEO values positioning. I think when you work on a complex product, you have to, because no matter how good your tool is, if people don't understand it, they're not going to use it. So a lot of this has really come from our CEO and our co-founders together, how Andrew and Emmett, their vision of what they were trying to do. And their long-term vision is really making it so that anyone can create their own apps and create their own software. When you say apps, we mean like applications, not like apps on your iPhone. But what they found was that a lot of people have to ask engineers to spend time building internal tools. When I was at Gusto, we had engineers who spent a lot of their time building internal tools for us to track customer information. And when I've been at other companies, that's a really big use of engineering time. And there are only so many engineers and almost every company I know is looking for more. And so having the engineer be the only one who can help you do that, not only is limiting to what the company can do, but it also cuts each individual off at the knees and being able to create the process and get done what they need to get done. So a lot of our positioning came from our vision, but then it was taking this audacious vision of like anyone can create software and being like, okay, how do we pull that back to what you tangibly get in the product today? I think good positioning is a mix of aspiration and real tactical what exists today. How we got to where we're at, there are a few different things we did. We have done a lot of just workshopping of like what words feel true to us, what feels in line with our kind of brand and what we want. And we're really trying to empower the builders and the creators. We call the people who use our software creators because it's really a specific type of person who has a desire to roll up their sleeves and get in there and figure out how to make this thing work. A lot of the positioning around that has been thinking about like, what is true for us? What do we care about? What is true of our customers? So really looking at who is succeeding with our product. What are they like? What do they care about? A lot of customer interviews. And then one thing that I think we did that was very smart and well done, and I can say that because I didn't do it. So I'm not bragging uh, on anyone (laughs) except for my colleagues is we sent a survey to the top 5% of our customers based on longevity and usage and asked them to tell us what Airtable was. The thing about Airtable, and I joked about this when I talked to Marcus, is that it can be anything to anyone. You can use this tool to do anything is horrible positioning in terms of helping people understand if they should use your product. It's awesome from a total addressable market standpoint. It's kind of a nightmare in terms of creating messaging and positioning. And 
oftentimes you have a very particular view on what your product does because you work on it. And if you're Airtable, you use it every day and you know where you're going and you have this vision in your mind and it can make your positioning get kind of too far out in front of your skis or where you actually are. So we had our best users tell us what Airtable was. And of course, what we heard from them, some of it was amazing. Some of it is what we always hear, which is people call us a spreadsheet plus plus or uh, a spreadsheet on steroids. We don't <laughs> yeah. want people to think about us that way. I think it really worked at the beginning to talk about us in terms of a spreadsheet because it's familiar, but we really want to kind of get more into this kind of concept of creating your own applications and, and, and software creation. And that said, in doing that, that level of kind of research with current customers, we knew we had to keep this concept of familiarity of a spreadsheet in our positioning, even if in three years, we hope no one's talking about us as we relate to a spreadsheet. It needs to exist right now because that's how people think about us. And so it has been kind of this marriage of the vision that we have and our CEO's point of view and concept, and then also what is true and what our current customers feel and think about our product. And, you know, it's art and science. You do some research, you talk to your visionaries, you meet in the middle and messaging is not copy, but you turn that messaging into copy and you can see pretty easily, especially in a self-serve product to continue to plug product-led growth, but especially in a self-serve product, you see if your positioning is working by your website conversion. You see if people actually get it mm -hmm. or if you've just really flopped it by doing things like updating your homepage. Yeah, and you know, I'm actually looking at the Airtable website right now. And this is great because you just touched upon it. And I want to talk about the difference between messaging and positioning. But I can see, right, as kind of an anchor, as a familiarity, actually, it says this, your team will love the familiarity of a spreadsheet and the power of a database, right? You're using spreadsheets in your messaging. But as we just discussed before, your messaging isn't your positioning. So like, mm -hmm. you gave me a really good definition before, or, or really just a kind of a framework to think about positioning and messaging. Could you share that? What is the difference between positioning and messaging? Yeah, we were joking before we started recording that I think people just say the term messaging and positioning because it's like a product marketing term, but have like yes. no idea the difference between the two. Positioning comes first, messaging comes second, copy comes last, and none of those are the same. Drives me nuts when people look at a positioning statement and they're like, oh, great, put that on the website. And you're like, I did not just write copy. I am actually not a great copywriter. Our head of content can tell you that. I lean on her team all the time because they are really masters of actual copy positioning is what you want people to think about your company, the idea you want to put into society, the feeling you want to invoke, the way you want to position, hence the word positioning, position yourself in the market, especially yes. as it relates to other options out there, especially as it relates to the tools you could use instead of ours or not using tools at all. I have been really lucky to work at some great companies and really early in their company journey. And oftentimes when you're a new company, you're not positioning yourself against competition. You're positioning yourself against not using a tool for this, especially in software. Yes. And so it's how you want people to think about you and what does that mean? And, and what do you want people to take away? Once you get focused on that, you then get into messaging, which is, I have a very specific messaging framework that I got from my time at Asana and just will not abandon until someone shows me something that's clearer. You got a framework that says, what's the industry shift that's making this important? Like why now, basically? Then you get, who is this for? What are their pain points? What is your two line on what your product is? What are the benefits of that product? And how are you different? And that is messaging. None of those are sentences that you should take from a messaging framework and immediately put on a website. Now, sometimes I do write messaging that could be used as copy if I'm moving fast, or if I am trying to work with a brand new team member or a freelancer 
user who maybe would need to take that and immediately turn it into copy. But good messaging is not good copy. It's just really clear on exactly what the pain point is and exactly what the benefit is so that anyone reading it gets exactly what you're talking about. My use of exactly is, is uh, a little excessive there, but it's important because it's targeted and a good messaging framework is half a page long. You don't need a 30 page messaging framework. If it is, then what are you actually saying? And once you have that, if you're on a marketing team, that messaging can inform all of your marketing activities. Mm -hmm. Every landing page, every blog post, every in-product announcement ties back to that messaging. It's like your North Star of what you're trying to, to say and do, but that messaging doesn't work if you don't all agree on what your position is. If we didn't all agree that Airtable is more than a spreadsheet plus plus or a spreadsheet on steroids, we wouldn't be able to make good messaging. We have to agree on what it is that we are to start actually building the messaging and, and writing the copy. So that's my very opinionated definition on messaging, positioning, and copy. I love that breakdown. I've talked about and thought about the difference between positioning and messaging, and I feel like that was clear, but the difference between copy and messaging, that's really clear. And I'm actually going through, hey, we're really reworking our positioning, but it's going to obviously mm -hmm. impact the messaging and the copy. And I was kind of getting hung up on like, oh, this messaging is like this exact stuff that we care about and want to talk about. That should be the copy on the website. It's like, no, copy like on the website, for instance, or copy anywhere in your marketing. It's different, right? And as you said, you don't really know if it's working it's converting, right? So like it's mm -hmm. a different sort of beats to master and, and figure out. So I, I love that. I also want to say halfway through this interview, I don't even have to ask the follow-up questions. Like, you know, what you're answering <laughs> and you're going into exactly the things that I'm going to ask. So this is amazing. I usually start with 10 questions and it's like, all right, we're going totally off script because this is exactly the stuff that people want to hear about. All right. So we've talked a little bit about Airtable. We've talked about the differencing positioning, messaging and copy. Now I want to get into a little bit more about how do you manage positioning for Airtable? I want talk about the nitty gritty. I want to talk about the logistics mm -hmm. of it, the day-to-day -day management of it. You mentioned before on the previous episode that you were starting a positioning sprint. I believe, as you were saying, you're in that positioning sprint. What is a positioning sprint and, and what is the outcome that you're looking for from, from that sprint? Yeah, my deadline for this positioning sprint is rapidly approaching and I have meetings about it all the time in the next few weeks. So what this is, is a dedicated amount of time to figure out what our messaging is for X period of time. A lot of times people are like, oh, what is our messaging forever? And I work in a startup. We are changing. Our product is changing. Our messaging is going to go out of date. Your company mission and vision shouldn't, but your messaging does and should. And if it doesn't go out of date, it means you aren't specific enough in your messaging. So what we are in a positioning sprint is to say, what do we want to say about Airtable for the next year? What do we want to put out in the market? What do we want to have people think about when they think about Airtable? What are the big benefits we're going to lean into? So I call it a sprint because if you you don't set a deadline that says this is when we're done with the positioning and the messaging work, you will work on it forever. There yeah. are few things that people like to debate more than like words. I often joke when a marketer is frustrated <laughs> about having 300 people edit their copy that everyone, almost everyone feels like they write pretty well. They mm -hmm. know how to write. They could come up with words to use. I can't write a line of code, so I can't critique somebody's code, but anyone can critique my writing. Because of that, you can spin around in circles. And there's often this feeling of like, well, is it there? we fully get it. And I've never done a positioning sprint or, or a bit of messaging work that says, we did it. This is perfect. This messaging is perfect. You get to a point where you're like, this is good. This is 85%, 90% of the way there of what we wanted because getting to a hundred, like it's not going to happen. Or if it has happened to you, tell me 
your secrets because I haven't gotten there. So what we're in is a four to six week process. We kicked it off. We did internal interviews. So what we started was there are a lot of, of opinions on what your message should be, what your positioning is. So what we started by doing is just interviewing our entire executive team and our investors. Investors was really interesting in order to make sure that like you can get a little too much navel gazing after a while where it's just all these internal people thinking about this company that we think about all day, every day. And by mm -hmm. talking to our investors, you both understood why did this fund want to take a chance on this product? But also they're thinking about a lot of market trends. They've got a lot of portfolio companies. So they're able to look at us in context of a lot of different things that you're not able to do internally. So you started with investors and your executive team for a positioning yeah. trend. That's so interesting because yeah. you would think the, the default of any other product market would be like, oh, if we want up to their positioning, we should go do that survey of our top customers or go book yeah. calls with them. So why start with investors and executives? That's very interesting. To be honest, I want to get this approved. If you do not understand what your executive team and your investors want to see out of good mm -hmm. messaging and positioning, you could write something amazing that is backed mm -hmm. up by every customer you have. But if it's different than your CEO's vision, or it's not where your CMO wants to go, or it's different than the conversations that are happening in your executive team meetings, no one's ever going to align on that. So we need so to understand true. where people were in terms of what they thought about yeah. our current positioning, what they thought totally. about our current messaging, what they wanted to see us talking about. But also it's a good way to find people's ponies, which is what is the thing this person really cares about? Like their thing yeah. that they're not going to let go of, they care a, a, a ton about. And then you know it as you go into the messaging work to say, okay, I know that this executive is going to get hung up here. I know that it's basically a mandatory that we include something about this. And so it just is such an important part. Product marketing's work is not just doing the work. It's about then actually getting everybody else on board to the work. And that happens yes. but by doing stuff like that. So that's where we started. And we also talked to investors because we wanted to see where they wanted us to go. Like that was yeah. interesting to us. And then we went to customers. So we did that, got interesting learnings, made us kind of tweak also knowing those things had us tweak the conversation we had with customers because mm -hmm. we're like, okay, Okay, there are those ponies. There are those things that really matter. There are those concepts that people really want to push. How do our customers feel about it? Just because I heard all those things from the executive team doesn't mean that the work output is going to have all of them. But I know if those are things that really matter, I've got to really have a solid case why we shouldn't do something or why yes. that's not going to work. And so it had us kind of tweak our customer interviews to have us understand like, okay, we need to really dig in here and see if there's anything there. For us right now, it's the concept of app creation at Airtable. And do people get what we mean when we say that? And so that's a lot of the customer digging we've been doing. To interview your customers, we had to be really careful about which customers to interview. And at a company like Airtable, I think this pain is even more pronounced than other companies in the fact that I don't have a target customer. I have like mm -hmm. six or seven or eight. Do you like, have personas yeah. then? Do you, do you kind of map the Not various really, power users? really, to be or, honest. No, okay. We have three. There are three personas, but they're not personas the way you would think about like, I don't know, personas at a, I feel like I always use this example and I'm sorry for people who work in marketing automation, but like in email marketing, you have very clear personas. We don't have that at a, a this broad of a company. So the personas we have are the creators. Now these are the mm -hmm. people who are going to do the building in Airtable. They are the ones who have the wherewithal and the skill and the motivation and the clout in their company to pick a new tool, build out a process and get other people to use it. Then there are the collaborators. These are the people that those creators bring in. And there are different collaborators. There are collaborators who are like partners in crime to the creator that we're going to co-create mm -hmm. this thing with them. But there's also like resistant collaborators who are like, I don't actually want to use this tool. I don't 
don't want to use a new tool. I don't really want to do that. Or like, I'm scared of it. I don't know how this works. So yeah, there's some often th those there. personas are just as important to figure out, right? Oftentimes, oh my God, more important. The people that are actually, yes. yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. Cause they're like, they really don't want to use your tools. So how are you going to win them over? And then Airtable is a product that has a, a big self-serve motion, which is why I have a job, but we also have a large enterprise motion. And so there's line of business leaders. There are the people who are probably mm. not going to use the tool every single day, but they're involved in the decision of, yes, we're going to do this. So yes, we're going to go all in here. Yep. And so there are different groups that we're doing. I think people uh, refer to that as the board. economical buyer. Is that what they call it? The, the person, yeah, that, like, like the executive yeah, the or the person that comes maker, in and makes the, yeah, yeah. the financial buyer, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Exactly. And then maybe I'm, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but I'm really curious about, you were talking about this with Marcus, bottoms up messaging and top down messaging. And it relates to these personas. And then there was something about, I think, horizontal messaging and, and segmented lens. Yeah. How do you like, let's break that down a little bit, because what you're doing is very fascinating where you have early adopters, someone that's using this tool, and then you have to help infiltrate the organization and get other collaborators mm -hmm. to use it. And then some people that are naysayers and don't want to use it. So let's break that down. How do you attack that with bottoms up and top down messaging? Our main positioning sprint right now is focused on the creator. And that's because no matter what enterprise we go into, we know that the way this succeeds is by getting like an internal champion who just freaking loves Airtable, who gets it, who's going to go for it and build something out. Like that's how we succeed. And so our main message right now has to be towards creators, even if we are trying to move up market, which we are, like we see huge success in very large companies, we're still talking to creators. We're still talking to people who, yes, they work at a huge company, but they're the person who's kind of making stuff happen. And so that's kind of the core is the messaging for the creator. We then build out different tracks of messaging and that's bottoms up. That is what we mean when we say bottoms up. It is like an individual contributor or a program manager or a team lead saying, I'm going to use this tool and I'm going to figure it out versus a tops down message, which is a message of, of a leader saying, we all need a tool for all of this. And I'm going to tell my chief of staff for somebody on my team to go figure out what those tools are. And we're going to have them go through the formal RFP process where they talk to a bunch of different tools. And then we, at the end, us and IT figure out which one we're going to use. That tops down messaging, that person does not care about the tactics of exactly how the product works and the ins and outs and how we're going to help you get things set up. What we care about is like business value and ROI and digital transformation and, and just these larger concepts. And so that's tops down messaging. What is this tool going to do for your organization? Whereas bottoms up messaging is what are you going to be able to do with this tool and how are you going to do it? And so those are kind of two that intersect. And where the rubber meets the road is that like your website has to talk to both your tops down buyer and your bottoms up creator are going to hit your website as they're doing research. We are going to optimize for the, the bottoms up messaging because we're trying to drive website sign up. And we hope that there's enough tops down value in our messaging that if somebody's doing research as they decide to engage with us in a sales conversation, they see enough business value there that they're like, okay, we get it. When there are sections of our website that are totally dedicated to that. And I could go down a whole rabbit hole on, on how you set up like messaging on a website, but that's kind of tops down and bottoms up, you know, in our messaging framework, there's also that collaborator messaging, but that isn't one of those key tracks. That is yeah. messaging we know we need to keep in mind, especially once we get the sign up, because the collaborative message comes in when we're trying to get people to actively use the product. So on, on your positioning sprints, yeah. how do you, like, as you said before, I understand, so I'm, I'm getting the landscape here, but like, mm -hmm. how do you understand when you're going through this, if the work, the four to six weeks of work 
on revamping the messaging for the bottoms of approach with the creator. How do you understand if that was like worthwhile? Like if it was successful, right? Because you said before that it's like constantly improving. There's never like a finished product of positioning. And I totally get that. But how do you justify, okay, we spent the four or six weeks here and we did this new messaging that we revamped this. I know you don't want to call it persona, but basically this persona. How do you understand that if it was successful or not? Yeah, it's such a good question. Two steps there. One, we get all our customer insight. We go sit in a room or in this COVID world, a Zoom room, and we just debate back and forth. And we write stuff and some of it's trash and some of it's good. And we finally figure out messaging that we feel good about. Then we get internal alignment of, oh, do we like these concepts? But you get a few different concepts that you want to test, especially if you've got internal debate. Then you have your customers react to it. Now, a mistake people make and a mistake I have made severely (laughs) in doing positioning in the past is just showing positioning to a customer and saying, do you like this? Because people are gonna be like, yeah, it looks great. Like very rarely is a customer gonna be like, that actually is really bad. Like no (laughs) one likes to be like, oh, I actually really hate that. They're gonna tell you it looks good. You're gonna get a lot of positives. And then you're like, great, look at everyone loves our messaging because we only showed them the one we liked and they just agreed with us. And then you kind of move on. So yes, you show it to them. You ask, you say, what do these words mean to you? What do you think of when you see this? How would you describe it? But you also have them go through more quantitative feedback on your messaging. So you take four or five different terms and you have them stack rank them. Of this resonates most with me, this resonates least with me. You mm-hmm. have people, you kind of look at things like heat maps of where are people like spending more time reading, et cetera. You really try to get people to give you actual answers on things and you're able to get like, of people said that this message resonated with them better than nothing, but probably not perfect. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you want to marry those two things so that you're not just getting false positives on messaging. From there, you usually take that customer feedback. You got to do a rev on your messaging based on what you learned. And now you could be in a rinse and repeat endless cycle of that, of Mm -hmm. rev it, test it with customers, rev it, test it with customers. Eventually you get diminishing returns. So if you are in the position, the lucky position, like I am on being able to test on your website and having a lot of your customers kind of come through that channel, you A-B test on your website. We don't know what our main message is. Why don't we A-B test the message on the homepage? We don't know what the main, what is Airtable answer is. Well, why don't we try two different treatments on our product page and see? And conversion rates will win out. The other thing you have to look at is not just conversion, but like, again, if you work on a product like mine, that might get people to sign up, but also is it true to their experience of using the product? Because we can come out with some really amazing claims and messaging that, that would make everyone be like, oh, absolutely, I want that and sign up. But then actually prove true? Did they activate in using the product? Did they convert and are they paying customers? Is that messaging driving a more informed, engaged sign up? Not just one who signs up because you wrote really audacious, great messaging that is not true to your product at all. So that's how I can tell if it's working. And some of it honestly is, do we all feel good about the message? You know, yes, you can tell based on your website conversion, but is your sales team excited to talk to prospects about it? Are people excited about that message? Do they feel inspired by it internally? do we all want to rally behind it? Because I think that if your internal team can rally around messaging, even if it's C plus messaging, that's better than A plus messaging that no one believes in. And so there is a push and pull. It's not just the results of your your customers. It's how your team feels about it. I think every product marketer struggles with this because there's many reasons for it, but particularly with positioning and and messaging, this is just, it's not easy to quantify these things. You can A-B test, you can check conversions, but it's not always easy to quantify. I've found from my experience Mm -hmm. and the conversations I've had, it's like a lot of it, 
is a gut reaction from the team. And then there's just various ways of testing it and rolling it out and making sure that it aligns with your customers and, and aligns with the experience. That's another really important part, the experience mm-hmm. they have with your product and, and using it, especially in a product like growth model. But I also love what you said before, which is most product marketers are going to jump to, okay, if I'm doing this positioning sprint, if I'm copying Christy's model here, her framework, and I'm going to go do a positioning sprint, most people will be like, oh, I'm going to go talk to my customers or I'm going to mm-hmm. go listen to Gong. I love that you're aligning with the strategic vision of the company, right? What does the executive team think is this next evolution of the company? Or just here's our product roadmap for this year. And that obviously should be impacted by positioning, but okay, now let's take that and let's run some adjustments on on our, our positioning based on what this roadmap looks like. So I, I love that approach. The other thing I was going to ask you was around getting started or how often are you like, I think for some people, it, it would be challenging to just say for smaller teams, smaller people on smaller product marketing teams, be like, all right, every four or six mm-hmm. weeks or two times a quarter, we're going to do these positioning frameworks. Like what advice would you have for someone that maybe a smaller company, I think your table is about 30, which isn't huge, 30 people on the marketing team. Mm-hmm. But how do you rationalize spending the time on like a positioning sprint versus r- running more product launches or doing a rev on nurture flow or something like that? Like mm-hmm. where would you, you rank positioning sprints in, and how would you, you know, giving advice to the product marketer, probably at a smaller team, how would you help them guide them to saying, Hey, this is worth pausing and doing this because this is the outcome that we're going to get from it. Yeah. I actually, not just myself, there are three of us, three product mar- or three marketing leaders who are leading this positioning sprint, our creative director, myself, and our head of comms. So it's not just me being a hero. There are th- three of us here doing this. We had to fight really hard to get this approved. And it's not because our CMO and executive team didn't think it was important. It's because we have like, it's somewhere between 25 and 30. And between these two podcasts, I should have just looked at the actual number, but I, here I am and I have not. It's somewhere in there. There's so much that our team is being asked to do right now. Like uh, our CMO pushed back in a way that she should have. She said, yes, I know this is important, but Christy, you have so many things you have to do. How are we going to fit this in? And the reason we pushed for it was that all of these different problems we were having in different projects, in a new solution we wanted to launch, in a press pitch we wanted to do, in our website update, we were all getting hung up on the same thing, which was like, we don't have the positioning we want and and the messaging we want and need in order to, to do any of these things. And we don't have alignment across product and marketing and our, our customer facing teams, our sales and success team around what we should be saying. And so, yes, this will take time, but it will unlock a lot of other work. And the other compromise we made was we said, we're only doing this for creators for this bottoms up. We are not doing line of business leaders. We're not doing executive level messaging. We cut that because this could have been a huge huge project that took months. And we said, no, we're going to do just creators and we're going to do just for the next year. And that was also really important for us because there's an expiration date to this messaging. We know we don't have to think about where Airtable is going to be 18 months from now. We can be really specific. And so we were able to one, scope down the project. I think as a product marketer, you often have like hopes and dreams of of what something could be. And you got to let go of your darlings and say, okay, I'm going to do this on a a lighter scale and maybe I won't get everything I want, but at least I get something. But then also we it back to all the areas our team was struggling. And we were able to say, if we do these things, it will speed up all these other lanes of work. I hate myself for using this metaphor, but it's kind of this concept of like an arrow where you got to pull something back. Something might take longer to like spring a bunch of work forward. And so that's how we were able to get the buy-in on it. And we were able to, to make this a strategic project. And honestly, I also just committed to doing extra work. You know, I I knew this was going to help me. 
I knew this was going to help my team. I knew it meant I was going to work more than I was already working. Maybe we're going to have to do a little bit of weekend work or after hours work. And I had to really say to myself, is that worth it? And and the answer was yes, because I hope that it will help us long-term. And I hope that it will make it so that I don't have to do a bunch of weekend work or a bunch of like spinning in circles when I'm trying to write messaging for a product or a solution launch. And I keep getting feedback that it's not exactly right. And it's not exactly right because I'm writing messaging on very shaky positioning ground. I don't have that solid foundation. So that's how we kind of got the buy-in and approval on it. And so I think it's being able to prove to people what you're going to be able to do with that positioning. It's making sure that everyone who's a stakeholder in the work would understand why that's so important. And then it's being willing to like really roll up your sleeves and do it and maybe take on more than just what, you know, sometimes you can't put another project on the back burner. You got to sign up to do both and you'll only prioritize the work if it's really important to you. Well, I am excited to see how it turns out for you. I think a, a common symptom of misalignment on positioning is when sales is saying one thing to customers and then marketing mm-hmm. is trying to message something else. Like when that's happening, it's worth saying, okay, let's go back to the drawing board because, you know, if the sales team doesn't think this message is going to make them more money, then we got a problem and we got to address that. So I think that's a very common symptom. Okay. So I have two more questions for you. Pretty straightforward mm-hmm. questions. This is what I'm going to call the, the rapid fire, even though it's just two rapid fire <laughs> questions. All right. First one, what is the one book that you would recommend to a product marketer that's going to own their company's positioning? Yes. We talked about this a little bit before we started recording. I actually don't read that many business books and I am passionate about the fact that I don't in only because I work a lot and I would like to read things that I find fun and exciting. And some people find business books fun and exciting and I don't always. So the book that I will say is not the standard positioning books you'll hear. It's The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. I love Malcolm Gladwell. I think he forces people to think really differently. I love the way he tells a story because he has all these disparate parts and you're like, how are you going to land this plane? And he somehow brings it all together. So if you don't listen to Revisionist History, which is his podcast, could not recommend it more. I feel like everyone just listens to podcasts all the time now. That's a, a one to add. But the tipping point I love because it talks about ideas, trends, and social behaviors. And it talks about what is that moment where it catches fire. And he talks about fashion trends trends. He talks about different products. He talks about drops in crime crime rate. But really the big thing there is thinking about what are the conditions that make this possible? And I think it goes back to positioning because it's not just about you and your ideas. In the tipping point, he talks about how the right conditions had to happen for a certain fashion trend to take off, for a certain product to become popular. And so when you're thinking about positioning, I think it's just such a good way to think about like viral ideas and human behavior, but also about looking outside of just what you and your company is doing and keeping an eye on the market and on trends and on the pressures that are going to come to businesses. And even if that isn't directly in line with what your product does, if you have a better understanding of all the factors that go into your target audience's life, especially their work life, but just in general, you can make a better informed decision on your positioning. So I also just think it's an interesting book. I was a sociology major. And so this stuff is right up my alley, but I really recommend it. All right. So the tipping point by Malcolm Gladwell, also check out his podcast. It's called the revisionist history. It's called revisionist history. Cool. Really recommend it. 
Okay, I have not listened to that myself, so I'm going to. I have read a couple of Malcolm Gladwell's books, love them, love his line of thinking, and I totally agree. I love that you're giving an example outside of the the norm of, of the usual business books or marketing books because we got to think bigger than that. My last question is, who is another product marketing leader that you would recommend that I interview for this podcast? Someone that is awesome, badass at positioning, and that would be really helpful for this audience to hear from. Yeah, I really recommend a woman named Stephanie Bowker. She runs all of marketing at a company called Spendesk that's based out of Paris. She is an American in Paris. She and I worked together at Gusto. She's one of the best product marketers I've ever met, much better than I am. And I would tell anyone that asked me that, I just think that she's incredibly smart. She's very good. And specifically, I think she's good at forcing teams to think big, to push the envelope, to get creative. Sometimes as product marketers, you're too focused in the strategy. You're too focused in exactly the outcome you want. And I think she brings really interesting creative, smart thinking to marketing, whether it's performance marketing, whether it's product marketing, she is fantastic. And if you don't know already, Paris is a really big startup scene. There's really interesting stuff happening out of there. I think she has a really interesting point of view on both Silicon Valley, where she spent years doing marketing and also what do startups and what does marketing look like in another country? All right. So Stephanie, I'm going to be reaching out. would love to have a conversation. I love also mm-hmm. that you not only gave an example of someone, but you went into detail about why that person would be so good on this podcast, which is awesome. Awesome. I can't wait to listen to the episode. Right. Well, Christy, thank you so much. I hopefully do you, you feel warmed up? You're ready for your, your 5 p.m. To, to go through your positioning sprint? I'm ready. I'm ready to start writing. I'm <laughs> good. We're going to do it. We'll see. You know, I also feel the pressure of now I've just gone on record talking about all the great ways we do positioning. So we better deliver at Airtable. And hopefully in the next couple of months, you see a lot of really interesting stuff coming out of Airtable. Awesome. Well, everybody pay attention. Go check out their website. Go get a screenshot of the website now, and then we can get an after screenshot once everything is changed. And we'll all know that that's the copy, not the positioning or the messaging that's rolled out on the website. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of this series. Thanks again to Christy for the great conversation. Also, special thank you to the Sharebird team for producing this episode and all episodes of this series. If you have feedback, please email them at podcasts at sharebird.com. And don't forget to give me a shout as well on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Next week, we'll be back. This time, I'm talking to Tamira Neeson from Shopify. Another great conversation that I'm excited to share with you. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you're loving the content, please consider writing us a review. It would mean a lot. All right. See you next week. It's alright